This is Awaken to Superconsciousness, Class 2. Do we have any other questions from last week or anything before we go on? All right. Pardon me? Yes. Illustrating what? Oh, superconscious and subconscious? Is that what you mean? Is this is, is that the diagram you want? That's moving, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> um, this is actually because we tend to think. Would somebody mind just getting rid of this? Since I'm going to be walking up and down here. Um, I don't mean to the whole table. The whole table. Okay. I'm just moving around. I don't mean to be so helpless, but actually, just the base is enough. It was just the flowers that were disconcerting. The rest of it's fine. Thank you. Um, uh, we tend because we tend to think of uh, subconscious, conscious, and superconscious appropriately so as expanding levels of awareness we tend to have a linear concept we sort of see them built one upon another um, and I'm going to talk about that from another angle also tonight but when uh, Master talks about going to superconsciousness he says that superconsciousness is on the horizon line between subconsciousness and consciousness and, when, and that doesn't fit your little stack because, you know, naturally superconscious should be third. That's just kind of the way you, you think about it. So this image is an image that we sometimes use when we're teaching. Can you see over there? I'm not blocking this. So you see what a profound drawing this is? <laughs> this inverted Y or resting Y, the lazy Y, I guess you'd call it if it was a, a brand, is actually we use it when we're teaching meditation one to help people understand because what happens is this level let's say is the conscious level of awareness when we're active and doing things and moving around and when you meditate and when you go to sleep on both both ways you essentially withdraw completely from this level of awareness you when you lie down to go to sleep you just you you don't you don't touch taste smell hear feel anything you just lie there perfectly still when you sit to meditate you do exactly the same thing that's why I was saying the other day, remember that somebody walked into the SRF Hollywood church once and saw all the people meditating and said he was drunk. A drunk walked in. In a very loud voice, he said, what's the matter with the people in this church? They're all asleep. <laughs> he just couldn't figure it out. Because it does sort of look the same. But when you're meditating, when you reach this juncture where you've, where you've withdrawn from the conscious, you increase the flow of energy and then you move upward into superconsciousness. And if at that point you decrease the flow of energy even more, you move downward into subconsciousness. And even though here I have them spread, in fact, they, they probably sort of live a little more like that, which is why when we meditate, we sometimes go like that. <laughs> because we're completely withdrawn, and when the energy fades a little, we find ourselves, you know, people ask, you know, what is this? I don't mean to be rude, but, you know, the Jews have the habit of davening, and we, we always sort of wondered if that was because they used to meditate too long. Somebody started imitating it. But, but when you do, you'll be like in, you'll be having an uplifted meditation, and then suddenly you'll realize that you've either dozed off, or that you've drifted, and you find yourself, you're not conscious exactly, but you're no longer super conscious, you've fallen into subconscious, because you keep crossing that horizon line where the two levels are. Isn't that interesting? Is there any other comment? 
Swami talks about the subconscious in this chapter also. Um, I can sort of, uh, I, I actually put down some notes so I wouldn't get confused. Um, let me see if it comes right early. If it does, I'll just jump right into it. <laughs> can't read my own notes. Let's see if my notes make any sense to me. just wanted to see where that concept comes. Just a moment. No, it's later. Okay. Um, any other comments or questions about that? Doris, is that what you wanted me to put in front of you? Yes. Um, willpower, Kriya, keeping your eyes uplifted. You know, the position of the eyes, uh, when your eyes... Be, I often say to people, as a public speaker, I get to watch people fall asleep, which is something that most people don't get to do. And you, people fall asleep exactly as they say. You, your eyes fall. Master describes that, uh, in fact, there's exercises we do. Straight ahead, you're in the conscious level. When you drop your eyes, you go down into subconsciousness. And when you raise your eyes just slightly, you go more towards superconsciousness. So one thing in meditation is the position of the eyes. If you just keep your eyes slightly raised, you really can't fall into subconsciousness with your eyes raised. I mean, they may get pulled down, but as long as they're up, you can't go down. Kriya, of course, simple willpower, the, the continuous practice of learning that you can exert willpower without exerting tension, mental force, or physical force. And so it's just, it's the, and, and concentration, uh, on, on the object of concentration, whether it's an inner feeling, the breath, the sound of Om, the raising of energy up the spine. It's really just a question of en uh, like what you said was energy, but how, that's what the techniques are for. Or um, recitation of mantra, um, visualization, affirmation, prayer, um, all of those things. Because subconsciousness comes upon you when you're not directing your energy upward. Now, of course, you can enter a flow of energy when you're meditating that doesn't require any props. But often, you know, you'll just be meditating and then you'll feel the, the fruit of the effort that you've put forward and suddenly you'll be effortlessly elevated and there's no temptation to fall. But of course, as that begins to wane, then you have to stir it up again. Because the great enemy of meditation is, is subconsciousness. And it's a, it's a very bad habit to get into to meditate subconsciously. And if you find yourself in that habit, it's a good idea to meditate less and meditate more dynamically until you break the habit. Because subconscious is totally ruled by habit. And if the subconscious begins to know that when we sit like this, we go subconscious, it, it plays upon itself more and more. So it's better to be dynamic for 15 minutes than to be semi-subconscious for an hour and a half, really, because you're just reinforcing, an, uh, I mean, it's a little bit relaxing, but it's not really going towards superconsciousness in the same way. Fortunately, we have so many techniques, um, and you can stop and read the whispers from eternity and contemplate those words, you know, if you don't have enough energy on your own, there's so many different techniques you can chant, you can chant mentally, anything, basically, keeps you focused. A lot of it is just a mere decision to stay wakeful, but that requires willpower, you know, and, and so it's better to fill the space with something. Does that make sense? Yeah. Any other questions? Yes? You said that uh, superconscious was on the right line. Th that's how Master and I think others have described it, yeah. I just uh, wondered, as far as the why, is there, you know, 
seems like a line there in consciousness, so I'm just trying to... Well, I suppose there's probably a better way to draw it. I mean, but he, the, the, the superconsciousness can be found at the, at, the, at the meeting point is really more the way you would say it. Okay. You know, you're, you're just right here and then it's an escape point out that way. I, I, this is, look, I made this up. But to me, that what this had to do with was the rolling back of consciousness and coming to this juncture. That's the, that was the real point that I said this, and, and to illustrate that energy can be increased or energy can be decreased. I wasn't necessarily trying to illustrate everything with it. Okay? Yes, Rick? Uh, I think the comment was that you go, when you're meditating, you drive up and look at the horizon line and go into the horizon. And that's where you go into super consciousness. So this is the difference. Yeah. Okay. Um, where, where we're going now in, with this book, is, which is where this book goes for a, a while, which is quite nice, is really this is a summary of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And many of you who've been around longer have heard this, this word. This is actually the name of a person, Patanjali. Um, years ago, when we first started developing a, a, a curriculum for um, what we do here, we gave a lot of thought to various aspects. You know, what do people really need in order to have everything for their spiritual life? And believe it or not, you know, the whole, we used to have it divided up so it looked more like a curriculum, but nobody, it was like a well-kept secret. I had this whole thing roiling around in my head and I would make references to it and there wasn't a single other person in the whole place who had any relationship to it. So I decided it was too, Germanic. It was just too much imposed organization on a situation that didn't require it. But nonetheless, the thought is still there that those of us who've you know, been with this for a while sort of gradually understand what the basic building blocks are. And, and some of them are essential techniques and the others are what I, what I call the culture, the sort of self-realization culture or the Ananda culture, things that everybody who's part of Ananda for a while or part of the self-realization path for a while sort of knows. And Patanjali's Yoga Sutras are sort of one of the, the fundamentals that wherever you are with people who are related to the path of yoga, you'll hear Patanjali's name mentioned. So it's, it's sort of nice to realize that you're actually studying them. And sometimes people, Patanjali was a, a great sage, in fact an avatar, they say, uh, who lived at a time that nobody's quite sure of, but it was a long time ago. And one of the things that he did, which have made him so invaluable as a resource is he wrote a set of sutras or aphorisms in which in very, very succinct terms he defined the whole structure of the spiritual path. And in the way that these things are, it, it's, um, uh, well, they're aphorisms in, in the sense that there's so much in them. There's just a, a few words and yet you go deeper and deeper into it and you find all of these levels of meaning especially if you study them in context with personal meditative experience. And then you can look back and see that what he was doing was that he, he had a perceived reality which was enormous, I, I mean infinite in scope, and then he just found a few words that would be like a secret key. It would be like a code. And some people would read it and get one level of meaning, but those who themselves had expanded their consciousness as he had, would realize that he was referring to infinite realities. And they've been so, they were so, are so well expressed that all these hundreds or even thousands of years later, 
it's still how people, what people go back to when they want to just talk about the path of self-realization. Even though Paramahansa Yogananda has no published books about Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, he actually gave a series of, ex- he, he, he taught classes on the Yoga Sutras, and there is a, a series of notes, a very well-taken notes by one of his students on, on his Patanjali lectures, and they're ex- extremely good. We would happily share them, but we would probably get sued if we do. They're one of the, they're specifically one of the pieces that is still in dispute in this ridiculous lawsuit. So they're, they're around, and maybe if uh, you asked me, I could leave them somewhere and you could accidentally find them. <laughs> but a little bit, um, uh, Swamiji has hesitated to publish them for, for a reason that because they were somebody's notes of him speaking, they're not even his own, they're, they're rough in certain ways. He says things in there, he says things in there that if you don't already know what he means, you could misinterpret. You could read this and you could think, why would a master say that? Or how could he possibly mean this? So it's one of the reasons that we don't distribute them is that they could, they could be confusing. I don't really like to, um, think that only certain people have a right to know, but it, they are genuinely confusing in certain places. Kriyananda has talked for years about editing them and then publishing it. But the essence of it is what we're talking about tonight. So tonight we start in with uh, some of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, especially when we get into the Yamas and the Niyamas. So you can feel like a very proud person when somebody talks about Patanjali. You could say, yes, I've studied that. <laughs> okay, even though we haven't sat around and chanted it in Sanskrit and done things that some people do when they study it, we've learned the point of it. Because the point of it is how will it take us towards superconsciousness. That's what really matters. It was the only reason he said it. Okay. Um, Swamiji starts this, the chapter, the chapters four and five, which is what we're dealing with tonight, um, by really re-emphasizing what he said in many places, which is, and what I was saying at the beginning of this whole class series, this book is about the practical application of the principles we're learning. So he starts by emphasizing that this is all about the way we're made. This isn't an intellectual study. And this isn't anybody's ideas. And he goes so far as to make a whole case, you know, about how all religions are, are, are valid, not because the religion says it's valid, but because it expresses in some kind of a way that resonates with people the truth of what they already know. And it, it's a complete flip, and it's a very important difference that we go, we know something is true, and then we find a good articulation of it. It's not true because it's been well articulated. Do you see what I mean? It's not true because there's an authority behind it. It's not true because we all think so. It's true because when we look inside our own hearts and minds, we discover that it's true. And then we may all agree with each other, but the agreement is still all individually based. And as I was saying, uh, for those of you at church on Sunday, I was talking about the same thing. It's, it's just not enough to go along with everyone else. At least sooner or later, it always has to come down to our own knowing of it. And that knowing of it, again, is the temple of the inner self and the, the way that the human being is made. And he, Swami emphasizes the um, spine again and the importance of the spine because when we learn the practice of meditation, the meditation all takes place in the spine. And everything about our lives, in fact, radiates from the spine. This is the whole uh, science of being a chiropractor, an osteopath, is the realization that if the spine is out of alignment, even the physical body doesn't work. 
And spiritually speaking, if the spine is out of alignment, nothing works. And on the other side of that is if the spine is spiritually aligned and if the energy is flowing as it ought to, that's the source point of, of our whole reality. And that's why um, meditation happens there. Not, that, this isn't our way of meditating. This is the way of meditating. You see, it's a great deal of difference. And people can come at it with different orientations, different personalities, different slants. Some are more devotionally oriented, some are more, more austere. Some people sit a certain way or another way, but really, sooner or later, it all has to go back to the same thing. So uh, Swamiji also makes the point that meditation as Paramhansa Yogananda taught it, and therefore as he as a disciple teaches it, is meditation oriented towards superconsciousness. And that's also an important when people ask sometimes what's the difference between our meditation and this meditation or that meditation. Sometimes people, as Swami said, include in the concept of meditation certain rituals or prayers or contemplations of this or that, which may all be aids, but the entire point of meditation is to transcend all of it and to go into superconsciousness. This is meditation with the objective of self-realization. Nowadays, when there is so much meditation around, sometimes people are really just teaching you to relax and they're calling it meditation. You're doing a fantasy visualization and they're calling it meditation, which is not bad. I mean, I'd rather it kind of permeate the popular culture, but the more things permeate, the less they're well understood. My favorite example of these concepts getting into the popular culture was, this was even years ago, somewhere I saw Harlequin Romance. You know those uh, Harlequin romances in the, move, in, the, um, in the grocery store? And it had the usual sort of torrid picture on the front. You sort of saw some um, picture of some Wuthering Heights kind of castle in the background, some big house, and then there was this man was embracing this woman and her, her, her bodice was ripped and her dress was you know, half torn off of her and she was sort of embracing the man but she was also looking over her shoulder you know, with this other shadowy figure who was off over here, and you could see that she was torn between these two realities. And I, don't ask me why I picked it up, but I picked it up. I like Harlequin romances, actually, because the good guys always win. It always comes out happy. It's never really very crude. They're actually very nice stories sometimes. But let me, going on from there. I don't know why I know that. I think, why do I know that? I don't know why, but I have read them. Anyway, um... But the back of the book said, was it Isabella's karma to be with Richard? <laughs> or was her karma really with Ivan? <laughs> I thought, well, we've made it. You know, we have arrived. <laughs> well, in any case, back to where we were. Um, Which are you seeing on your front page of the choir? Oh, okay. Yes, it's true. It won't be long. <laughs> it won't be long. Um, so anyway, in all of that, when, when even yourselves, when you want to talk to people, sort of what, what makes what we do different is that we're oriented towards superconsciousness. We're not merely trying to relax. We're not merely trying to sort of get our energy together so we can do better at our jobs. You know, we're not really trying to have it all. The goal is superconsciousness. That also implies, you know, many, many other things, uh, such as the nature of this world and the purpose of our lives and so on like that. So it's a very important concept to, to think about and work with. Then um, Swami starts talking about 
sort of the way we approach superconsciousness. And there's the, what people often call the four paths of yoga, which are actually, Swami says it very well, there's really three paths of yoga and then meditation combines them all. And, and the three paths of yoga, and these are also, again, these are very fundamental concepts. For those of you who are newer to Ananda or to the path of self-realization, these are the ideas that you will return to again and again and again. And even the Sanskrit words, Patanjali's name, karma, bhakti, and jnana, which we're going to speak of, these are just words that people will just use all the time. And as Swami himself says, we have to use Sanskrit because there is no English. Well, Patanjali and the sages of India and the, the traditions around which this is based, again, are all based on human nature. And so they, they wrote out these four, uh, three different ways that people are inclined. Karma, bhakti, and jnana. Um, Master spelled it like that. Some people spell J-N-A-N-A, which is very hard to pronounce in English. So Master said G-Y-A-N-A, jnana. Okay, and these, these different approaches to superconsciousness or ways of working our way out of the karma that, that what holds us back from superconsciousness relate to three fundamental types of human nature. Now it's also very important to appreciate the fact that nobody is purely one way or another. Nor, in fact, are these really separate ways. It's just more like um, some of us, people have a, a inclinations and it's an easier starting point. Um, karma means action and activity but as Swami says, it means the activity which draws you towards superconsciousness when we speak of it as um, uh, karma yoga. Uh, I used the word karma before because it also just means action. It's just the word that means the action and reaction of life. The word also which is important here is of course the word yoga, which means union, implying union with the spirit. Okay, so we usually use this word as karma yoga, meaning you'll attain union through action. Because people are active. Most of us in the West, are, we're all karma yogis, because we're just too active. Swami just says it's impossible in this country virtually not to be a karma yogi. It's just too, too rajasic, too active a country. Bhakti means devotion. And so people who are very heart-centered, uh, who move from their feelings, from their emotions, they like the practice of bhakti. They like to practice bhakti yoga because it, it, life it doesn't, isn't meaningful unless there's a feeling element to it. And then jnana is often thought of as intellectual, but it, it's really more the word discrimination. It's the way of wisdom. Jnana is wisdom. And wisdom is extremely different than mere intellectuality. And that's sort of what the song was making fun of this evening. You know, this man who had all these ideas in his head but he didn't know how to live with them. That was what the joke was about. And he thought everything was defined by how much you could recite, where this poor oarsman is trying to say, well, I have a life, you know, I, I can't just sit around and fill my head with theories. I have to live and work. And when, you know, when it really came down to it, his knowledge didn't serve him at all. He didn't even know how to swim. And Master used to tell that story as the, the myth of intellectuality. So it's very important to understand that jnana yoga is not to be a highly educated person. But it's to use the power of discrimination to help you understand what this life is about. Now, what's also important to understand is none of these can be practiced independently. Because if you practice any one of them without the other, you end up being imbalanced.
So it's important, let's, and we'll talk for a few minutes, Swami was very succinct, although he was extraordinarily to the point in what he said, but it's important to talk about this. So a lot of times we talk about karma yoga. This is, again, a Ananda vocabulary, and you'll hear it in lots of other places. Oh, we're just going to be here and do a little karma yoga, which is always a nice way of saying we're going to work. <laughs> right? But it also implies more than that. And, and sometimes these words are just euphemisms for we're going to work. But, but the idea is that we are all very active in our lives, especially as I was saying in this country, um, this climate, we're, we're just forced to be. In the Hawaiian Islands where the food falls off the trees and you can just wander into the ocean and you know run a net through and get the fish, you don't really have to be so active. You can just lounge around and do something less. At least you used to be able to. Now they tell me Honolulu is just as frantic as any other place, but it used to be years and many, many years ago that, as Swamiji said, you could incarnate there and not quite leave the astral world, but you didn't really have to work. Here, just to feed and clothe ourselves requires a great deal of effort. But merely to work is not the same as karma yoga, because karma yoga is action which leads toward union with God. And what leads us toward union with God is the overcoming of the ego, of ego attachment, ego identification, identification with the body, overcoming the inclination to draw everything to a focus in the small self and begin to define ourselves and our reality with a larger reality. Um, it's in other words, that everything we do is di has a direction to it. Now, a, a great deal of what, what we, when we work the direction in which that energy takes us has a lot to do with the attitude of our mind. Are we working merely to get for ourselves? Do we work with a competitive and a, a, an attitude of, of beating down the opposition? Do we work merely for self-aggrandizement? Do we work in order to be considered important by others? Do we conduct our work in such a way to have power over other people? Do we think constantly about our own role, even in reverse? Are we constantly anxious because we're inadequate? Are we feeling always nervous that we don't know what to do? Do we constantly just think about whether other people like us and whether or not they're going to approve of us or not? In other words, what is the direction of our consciousness in the work that we're doing? Okay? So the, the, the true kind of karma yoga is to, to work with an understanding that, number one, all work is service. That it's a privilege to be on this planet and everything that we do, we do as a service, as a divine service to act as a channel for the divine instead of simply acting for the ego with my own thoughts and my own ideas we act with a sense of attunement divine mother how would you like this to be done or as swami said to us in his christmas message that we read a couple of weeks ago on sunday you know master what would you do in this circumstance be my hands be my voice be my heart in this let me act not merely as my ego but as an instrument of something else other attitudes that are fundamental to karma yoga are to, to, to work and live and take action in the present. So one of the attitudes of karma yoga is that we work without, as they say, for the desire for the fruits of what we're doing. We work as a pure service to God, not with always the future picture of what's going to happen to us. That's what binds us, is when everything that we do comes back to ourselves and then there's some expectation related to it. So to truly practice karma yoga is to be completely detached. Now that is not the same as being completely lazy. People often who are the most detached are the most energetic because they don't have any conflicting cross-currents of fear. 
it's just a job that needs to be done and I'll do it as well as I can and if it comes out well that's God's will if it comes out badly that's the way it's meant to be if it's successful that's wonderful because I've done my best if it isn't then God has done with it whatever he wants now that's the real attitude of karma yoga now the other aspect of karma yoga is that we have set in motion karmically speaking a lot of attitudes and energies that bind us at this point Swami uses some very simple examples we may have for example too much of an attachment and an attraction to beautiful things let's say and that attachment and attraction to beautiful things sort of binds us we we spend too much money we shop too much we're just always oriented that way the the process of karma yoga sometimes is to take something that you're inclined to do anyway but turn it toward a more expansive direction I'm looking at Sharon and I wouldn't call her as being attached to material things but she spent years as a gift buyer at East West and it's been sort of a way of transmuting whatever you know interest and desire you've had to shop and own things yeah really because she's been doing it as a service to other people Swamiji said he used to enjoy because he really is very attracted to beautiful things he used to love to buy things he particularly loved and then giving them as gifts to other people and then he had the pleasure of 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 capturing it but then he also had the freedom of giving it away and and so just very simple gestures like being generous you can see they really have a very real basis in them not only do they affirm a greater reality but they can help turn your energy so sometimes we can look and think you know what are my slight negative inclinations and how can I flow with the way my energy is going but re-channel it and so Swami also describes karma yoga as the re-channeling of your energy because we can't just withhold it oh I have such a, an attraction to beautiful things I love beautiful homes I love beautiful clothes I'm not going to do it 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 it doesn't necessarily free you of it sometimes it just makes you much more obsessively aware of it sometimes it's better to engage in it but then try to engage in it more expansively and very often we're drawn to do things without even thinking about it we don't ever sit down and and uh, analyze it out but we'll suddenly find ourselves in job or life situations in which we realize our worst qualities are being redirected into something better um, you know sometimes having children does that to people you know they're they'll realize that they had certain qualities that they needed to work out and then suddenly the circumstances demand of them that they go in another direction with them you sort of get to do them but not quite and then you discover in the more expansive expression of them that it's really much more satisfying than it ever was just to hold it for yourself does that make sense so that's what true karma yoga is and every situation can be turned into karma yoga nishkam karma action without desire for the fruits of action and sometimes it's forced upon you nobody appreciates what you did you know you did it really well somebody else grabs the credit you did it really well and nobody ever notices that you did it well so it's sometimes the way you can work against your own inclinations to feel unappreciated or mistreated is to say well it was nishkam karma I just did it for the sake of doing it you know or I can always just say if I accept this with enthusiasm then instead of those actions binding me I'm freed by them so so we have to always be working I, I, I always think of it as I used to think of it when we were working there's another kind of karma yoga that we used to call kamikaze karma yoga which was just working yourself virtually to death sometimes because 
I used to feel that, that my, my bad inclinations and my good inclinations were like two race cars in a drag race, right? And I had to work just a little harder than all my negative forces were pulling me. And I just sort of, it would be a neck and neck struggle like that. That would be the Kamikaze Karma Yoga period, where you just would have to work all the time. And I say that because it's an intermittent reality. Because if you stop for a moment, all of your negative attitudes are just going to pull you down. So you just have to keep working. Sometimes you have to just stay active. I remember years ago there was a woman who worked seven days a week and somebody said to Swami, don't you think she should take some time off? Swami was very direct. He said, I know what's best for her, like that. Because whenever she took time off, she went right into mood. You know, so it was really better for her to work all the time because she didn't have the mental stability to have free time. But if she kept her energy going in a serviceful manner, she was able to stay ahead of that inclination. And after a while, she didn't have to do that so much because she'd rechanneled enough energy that the vibrations were different. So sometimes with us, too, we think, oh, I need to be more meditative or more contemplative or have more free time. But look at yourself. Does it really help you? I mean, if it does, yes. But if it doesn't, practice more karma yoga. Okay, does that make good sense? Ananda is very karma yoga oriented. One, because it works. Two, because we have a work to do. You know, this is a project. This isn't the time for other ways. Any questions or comments about that? Bhakti yoga is the practice of devotion. And Swami makes a very strong point that true bhakti yoga is the, is the inner silent union with the beloved. The means to that are, is chanting and prayer and um, sometimes other kinds of rituals um, and, and you know beautiful ceremonies and so on. And some people are more inclined to enjoy those things than others but the point is that one way or another the feeling quality of the heart must be awakened and oftentimes people who have been raised in our society to be very dry and sometimes quite um, disinclined to engage in their feelings will say well I'm a jnana yoga I don't like bhakti very much but everybody needs bhakti because without love, love is the nature of the universe. Love is the nature of the divine. You don't have to be over-emotional about it, but deep in your, in your inner self, there has to be a profound sense of feeling because as Swami also writes, without that feeling, the mind just wanders endlessly. It's the feeling that motivates us. And often if people are too oriented just toward the intellect, without enough heart, they spin a good story, but they never do anything. And sometimes people will just sort of read and read and read and talk about this theory and talk about that theory, just like the philosopher. But because there's no feeling engaged, they're never moved to action. It's feeling that makes us act. What makes us become devotees is because the heart demands it. We just can't bear it anymore. There's, there's some feeling quality that moves us to do this. Maybe we're attracted first through the mind, through the, the beauty of the theory, but even the admiration of the beauty of the ideas comes from the heart. There has to be something in it because that's where the moving force is. And also, the heart is filled with all of these conflicting feelings. You know, all of this inclination in one way and I want this and I don't want that and I like this and I don't like that. And what bhakti yoga does is it sweeps all those desires away into the one single desire. When, whenever in our lives something really powerful strikes us. Somebody in your life that you love becomes very ill or uh, your, your, a parent is dying or a dear friend is sick or you have an emergency in your life. A whole lot of other little things just fall away, don't they? 
after September 11th in this country, I mean, we're still in it a little bit, it's begun to wane a little, but there was a glorious reaffirmation of what was really important to us. And many, many, many little considerations that had just been eating this country up and really killing it by inches were just gone because all of a sudden we could see what was really important and what really mattered to us. There was an enormous rush of feeling that clarified everything for us, isn't it so? So bhakti yoga is, is developing a sufficient direct experience of divine feeling that it clarifies everything. If you have a, a profound experience of the, the need for meditation or the joy of the spiritual path or the uh, vibration of Jesus or the, the truth of Yogananda's presence in your life, you don't really sweat the small stuff anymore. You know, you don't really sort of sit around and wonder whether this person or that person has it exactly right or whether this paragraph in this particular book really relates properly to that paragraph in this book because it's all swept away. You just say, this is mine, this is where I'm going. When you fall deeply in love with someone, you may have had all these principles about, well, you know, I want a woman who's this tall and has this color hair, or I want a man who looks like this or does that, but you fall in love, you forget. All of a sudden, this is the perfect one for you. And if it's done with discrimination, which is where jnana yoga comes, it can be a very wise move because the rest of it was just superficial anyway. So it's, it's, it's very much of a shortcut on the spiritual path to cultivate devotion. And chanting, on our path we have many devotional practices. Yogananda said, in this age that we live in now, he said, it's such a confusing age that, it, that devotion is really essential because it cuts through it all. You know, if in, in a higher age where, where the, the veil of Maya is very thin, you know, we, it takes less. But here devotion is essential because we just have to cut through all the chaos of the world that we live in. So, you know, there's chanting, there's meditation, there's prayer. And if you're not inclined to a big show, pick up Paramahansa Yogananda's Whispers from Eternity. You know, just read that all by yourself because those are such exquisite expressions of the heart's feeling for God. And Yogananda said the way to use that book is take one of those prayers, he said, and read it over and over and over again until you have drawn from every word the divine message in it and then go to the next. Now, I don't mean to do that to the point of boredom if it doesn't inspire you, but, but what he's saying is there's a great deal in there. One way or another, work on the feeling quality of your heart because it will just, it's the airplane route, okay? However, feeling, and it, it can so easily, inner feeling can so easily go to emotion unless it's balanced by jnana yoga, which is discrimination. And what true jnana yoga is, the, the discriminating as to what is real. And it's not merely intellectualizing. You know, people are sometimes very disappointed because we, we, just, we don't intellectualize in this environment that much. I mean, we're, it's not that we, we can't, it's that we're not interested. You know, it, it's not interesting to just know a lot about a lot of stuff um, on the spiritual path. And, and as a hobby, yes. But as a path, no. <laughs> because the point is you need to know enough to know what to do about it. And what really matters is how your discrimination relates to your bhakti yoga and your action. And so the, the, the path of jnana yoga is um, the, the path of asking, you know, what is true? Why is it true? What, is, what does it mean to me? And what am I going to do about it? And what is the right action in every situation? What will really take me 
to divine consciousness and just using that very very that very that very clear awareness sometimes people resist jnana because they don't really like to bring things to too clear a focus they just like to feel okay and i mean i i say it like that because sometimes merely to bring things to a very clear focus is not to be unintuitive or to be anti-feeling but sometimes if you don't bring it to a clear focus your feeling will really lead you astray and it's not like you bring it to such a clear point that you kill the spirit but if you don't bring it to a clear point oftentimes you go off in subconscious delusions because your feeling has really sucked you downward rather than brought you upward it's not that you analyze it really is that you just try to understand it. Does this really make sense? Is this really consistent with divine teachings? Is this really reflective of where, who I am and where I'm really trying to go? Just ask yourself simple, honest questions. You know, is this really the right thing? And it's, it's very, very helpful to train your mind to ask the right questions and to train your heart to listen to those answers. Just, who am I? What am I doing here? There's a, the Indian practice which he mentions called neti neti, which is, is very simple. It means not this, not this. I'll tell you the joke that so many of you have heard, but it's such a great joke that Swami tells about a man who got drafted into the army and was very unhappy about being in the army and he just began to behave in the most bizarre way as soon as he got into the army. All he was interested in was pieces of paper and everywhere he'd go, he'd pick up paper and he'd examine it like this and then he'd throw it down and say, this isn't it. And then he'd look and he'd look at something else and he'd say, this isn't it. And if they were out in the field supposed to be drilling, he'd just be walking around picking up papers and examining it and rejecting them. And in the barracks, he'd do the same. And he just was so weird. Finally, they just took him to see the psychologist in the camp because he was so bizarre they didn't know what to do and he went into the psychologist's office and he kept picking up papers he kept saying this isn't it this isn't it and finally they said well there's nothing to do and they wrote out his discharge papers and handed to him and he said this is it <laughs> it's a very good story really and it's also a very true story and essentially that's what the practice of jnana yoga is when everything comes to you you don't say this is ugly or you know this is evil or this is sinful or anything you say well how does this relate to the infinite is this infinite is this it or maybe you attain a certain experience in life and you know everything is going really beautifully for you but you ask yourself is this it is this super consciousness am i completely free is this everything i'm seeking and if it isn't, then you just keep moving. And it's not, again, it's not that you reject or criticize. You just say, but there's more. But there's more. And in everything that you do, it's a very useful practice. Is this the best I can do? Is this my best effort? Am I being as kind as I can be? Is this it yet? No, not yet. Let me just do a little more. Can I find a way to serve God a little more perfectly? Be a little more kind, a little more good? This isn't it yet. Let me just keep going on. And somebody holds in front of you something that, oh, you know, this will really make you happy. You say, well, let me stand back. Ask the question, is this really true? Somebody says, oh, you're such a great person because you did this, you did that. You say, is this really so? Is this really going to bring me freedom? How do I relate to this in such a way that it will bring me freedom? You just keep your mind awake asking the right questions. 
That's what Jnana Yoga is. You don't ever have to study a book or understand anything. You don't ever have to be able to philosophize to be a great Jnana Yogi. A great Jnana Yogi is someone who simply uses their mind to create freedom. Will this action take me toward freedom? And just looks quietly at everything from the point of view of superconsciousness. And you see, then you get uh, wonderful feelings going, wonderful heartfelt love, and then if it begins to take you a little bit away and all of a sudden you kind of get crazy ideas, you can ask yourself, if your mind is clear, you can say, is this, does this seem like it's really taking me where I want to go? Am I losing the essence of what my devotional feelings were about? When you get very wrapped up in your work and you're suddenly, you know, you really, I remember it was very fun many, many years ago, a friend of ours, so it was 72, 73, a friend of ours decided that uh, a certain uh, Indian sadhu, this was uh, a man outside of Ananda, a certain Indian sadhu was his guru and that Indian was in India and the man was in America and he'd been living without working, he'd been living as a, in a very modest way and he needed to earn money to go to India to see his guru. And uh, at the time I had money and uh, we decided that we would give him some of the money. And he had set himself up in this whole little scene to work, he'd gotten just the right job, he had the whole thing all worked out and he was working to earn the money and we just gave him the money. And it was very interesting because for a brief period of time he was, he had become so involved in his life that he forgot really that he was just working to earn money. <laughs> and he had to just stop and really say, well what am I doing this for? Okay, this is, he was working karma yoga, he had this intention, we fulfilled the intention but all of a sudden he got caught up in the process. And he had to sort of pull himself out a little bit in order to drop everything and do what he'd really intended to do. And so we find ourselves, you know, we start down a certain path for a certain reason. And you have to constantly be asking yourself, where am I really going with this? So all three of these, no matter which way you're oriented, and, but it doesn't serve you to just think about things. You also have to be active. And sometimes you can't think clearly until you get active. Swamiji says, clarity comes through action. Sometimes you just won't get any more clear sitting there. In his book about leadership, Swami says, at a certain point in the discussion, any decision short of absolute madness is better than more discussion. <laughs> and sometimes in your life, any decision, any action is better than just sitting there continuing to think about it. Right? And so that's, uh, all, they all work together in that sense. Now, these paths, as Swami writes, karma, bhakti, and jnana relate to the human temperament. Raja Yoga, which is, they usually speak of it as four. Raja Yoga means, Raja means king. And this is the royal highway, Raja Yoga, is really the practice of meditation. But, but Bhakti, Karma, and uh, Jnana Yoga all funnel in, as Swami describes, and all of them have their application in meditation. And Raja Yoga transcends the human temperament. So in a sense, it stands a little apart from these other three. This is how to work with your human nature. Raja Yoga is how to transcend your human nature. But action without desire for the fruit, the patient, steady practice of meditation without always being anxious about results. Bhakti Yoga, obviously, the expansion of the love of the heart makes you really want to meditate, makes your meditation sweeter and deeper. And Jnana Yoga, which is to discriminate in the act of meditation, to, to do it correctly, to do it with determination, to not get sidetracked into subconsciousness or subconscious delusions. All of these come together in the practice of meditation. 
Pas mal, c'est ça. Even though it's a little early, let's take a brief break now because I'm going to change chapters and it's a logical place to stop. So let's, let's now it's come back in 10 minutes, 20 minutes up, okay? Before we go on to the next, to so the yamas and the niyamas. Okay. Um, Swamiji talks, I was remembering, mentioning that you know, Swami has a section and it comes in this part of the book about the, the, the subconscious and the conscious and the superconscious mind. And he, sometimes people accuse us, I mean, this is less of an argument now, but it used to be when yoga was more just beginning. The, yoga, by that I don't mean yoga postures, I mean the science of union with God. That's what yoga means when I say it. Uh, which yoga postures contributes, but it's only a piece of it. Um, that there's always this great concern about the subconscious because psychology is so popular and everyone's very concerned about the subconscious. And yet the subconscious is a very great factor and yoga takes it into account enormously. We walk around thinking that we're acting freely and we're not acting freely at all. I had a very startling revelation in that respect, not only thinking about the subconscious as being a collection of what's happened to you since you've been in this body, but also the subconscious collecting all of the impressions of all of your incarnations. Once in my life, I had a powerful and overwhelmingly true dream of a past life incarnation. I've only had that happen to me once. I mean, I think I've had dreams that may relate, but this was a, you know, like I was really living through extremely traumatic past life in direct relationship to a person with whom I had a traumatic relationship in the present. My traumatic relationship with that person in the present was exceedingly unreasonable you know, an enormously irrational sense of fear and foreboding about that person, which was just totally nonsensical in the context, causing me to react like an idiot to a great many things that were actually innocent. I'm sure you know these things. And that dream showed me that in past lives, the person had truly had a great deal of power over me and had, had used it very badly and it caused me, you know, unspeakable suffering. And, uh, but even though in that dream, just to be fair to it, the dream also took me to the end of my life in which I appreciated that all that suffering had, had made me spiritually very strong. And even in the dream, I said to myself, was it a good or a bad thing that happened to me? But the relevant point was that the next day, especially when the dream was so vivid in my mind and I saw the person who'd been in it, I realized that for all the years that I'd known them, I was acting as if what happened in the picture looked like maybe the 1700s or something. I was acting as if it happened yesterday. It was just as active, it was just as, as defining of my relationship as if it had happened the day before. And the, the thought, you know, went through me like, oh my God, what else is going on that I don't know about, right? And we know a lot of our reactions to, thing are con are, are, to things are conditioned by what's stored in our subconscious. That's what psychology specialized in a lot. And infinitely more than we know when you take into account reincarnation. So the subconscious is a very important element that we have to work with. But we also have to realize that the subconscious is in itself not the initiator of anything. It's exactly like the brain, you know, the memory in a computer. It takes it in, it feeds it back to you. I certainly feel that my computer has a personality and that it hates me. I, <laughs> and I'm quite convinced when it, it goes on the fritz 
at particular times when I'm under pressure and going on the fritz just messes my life up with no exit, that it's a deliberate act. But I know it's not. And when the techie people come over, they always treat it very impersonally and then they just rationalize their way through it and they figure out rationally what's wrong, right? Because it really does not have a will of its own. Oddly enough, neither does your subconscious. It really has no will of its own. It merely reflects back to you whatever the dominant theme you have planted in it. And you plant a new theme in it, it will give you something else. Now, that's not necessarily so simple, so easy to do, but nor is it that complicated. And so sometimes the whole... Now this, the, the practice of yoga presupposes a certain kind of egoic integration. So I, I say that because there is a real place for serious psychological work. If the ego has fragmented, if self-honesty is so difficult to obtain that you really need somebody else to help you, if you are so divorced from your own subconscious that you're just in a state of confusion or denial all the time, you sometimes have to go back and, and get your feet on the ground. But once you're flowing, the yogic way of working with the subconscious mind is really in very short and simple words to reprogram it. As Swami describes it, you can overcome it by adding to it what you want it to be in the future, by starving it of all the things that make it sick in the present, and by flooding it, you're flooding your whole self with awareness of the superconscious. Um, there's another element here which Swami doesn't exactly express here, but it's really worth thinking about. We tend to think, and I started to say this at the beginning of the class, we tend to think of there being three levels of consciousness, you know, subconscious, conscious, and superconscious. I'm always amused when I say that because there's this wonderful man who was responsible for bringing me to Ananda. He was, uh, through friends, he was the contact, and you always have a very special relationship, he and his wife, then wife. And he was a very, um, had a dry wit, and it was very intellectual and so on. And I can remember this was the very first visit at Ananda and we were driving the car with him and he said, uh, Swami Kriyananda teaches us that there are three states of consciousness, subconscious, conscious, and superconscious. He said, and I'm so proud because I have mastered one, meaning subconsciousness. <laughs> he said, so I figure I'm a third of the way there. <laughs> but in any case, we tend to think of it as three, but in really it's only two for a very interesting reason when you think about it this way. The subconscious is all of the momentum, you know, all of the, the habit-driven momentum of who we think we are, how we respond, even just the mere fact that, you know, we've woken up for so many years inside this body that we don't have to start over every day and say, what the heck is this? You know? But a baby, really, have you ever seen a baby when it discovers its hands? You know, first its hands will shoot by and it'll be so interested, you know. And then gradually it sort of begins to realize that there's some relationship and then this awareness that, you know, these are my hands and I can do things with it. Or when a child discovers its voice, you know, I was looking at Peggy and I remember when you told us your, your youngest, Ashley, who's now not young at all, but you were explaining to us that your third child, Ashley, as you put it, was a screamer and so you couldn't take her as many places as you'd been able to take the first two. Because she just really loved her voice and just used to play with it. That's what I remember you're telling me. It was just such an adventure to have a voice. But we don't sort of wake up in the morning with all those same kind of adventures. Because we're used to it, right? 
But there's so many things that we're just driven that are in the subconscious, our, our fears, our habits, our self-definition, and that what we're doing in, on the conscious level, conscious is not really conscious. So much of it is just the subconscious influencing us. And at the same time, if we're devotees, or actually it's true for everyone, but it's more, it's more conscious for us, we also have this idea of, of this aspiration, where we're going. We're praying to the guru, we're... You know, in, in my house I have it set up so that almost anywhere I sit I'll see something that's God reminding to me. In our bedroom I have you know, big picture of Paramahansa Yogananda and a very nice picture of Swami too so that when I wake up before I get going too far they're looking at me and remind me that you're not really supposed to just stay here and put the video from last night in. You're supposed to get up at this point. Right? You know, and, and one can still just look the other way and go ahead and do the wrong thing but it's harder because there's this super conscious aspiration that I'm always trying to draw in so the conscious mind the conscious level of awareness is really a battleground it's a battleground between the super conscious trying to, pull, to influence you this way and the subconscious trying to influence you that way it doesn't exist on its own it's just a question of, it's, it's a constantly changing state of awareness depending on which influences you're taking in. Do you see what I mean? And so it's, it's very interesting to realize that. And in the same way, if you flood yourself with superconscious, you're, you're also influencing, you're creating a momentum that then becomes your subconscious momentum. Because the subconscious is not inherently limited, it's just below the conscious level. But it can also be just filled. That's why with uplifting influences. That's why if you, if you chant very much, you'll often wake up in the middle of the night chanting. You come out of subconscious sleep and you're suddenly you're just chanting. You, you didn't even mean to, but it, uh, the power of the music and the affirmative words has such an influence on the subconscious that it will feed back to you automatically. I, there's a little story about a little child once who, his, his mother used to play, this is a true story, his mother used to play a chant Swami Kriyananda had a tape and he used to sing an early record and he sang Sri Ram, J Ram, J J Ram, beautiful, peaceful rendition of that. And uh, the mother used to play it a lot. And of course, whenever she played it, it would influence her because it was uplifting, it was calming. And once her little two-year-old had done something extremely naughty and the mother was losing her temper and was beginning to scold like this and the little child went, Wrong, wrong, JJ wrong. <laughs> Maybe this will work. <laughs> so we all notice that whatever we do a lot of, we do more of. And when we're asleep, don't we? Comes back and comes back. It's the battleground. So the principle, one of the principles of yoga, is just. And and when we meditate, of course, meditation is a great. Uh, measure of where our consciousness is at. So one of the uh, uh, principles that Patanjali created was we can use all of our actions to cultivate the right consciousness and then we'll become more full of it, more, more full of what we're supposed to be. We fill the subconscious and it begins to help us. I recall after I'd been on the path for 12 years, and we were talking earlier about 12-year cycles. 12 years is an astrological cycle that often you'll find it has a lot of symbolic and real significance, 12-year cycles. If you look at your life or other people's lives, 
the age of 12, 24, 36, 48, 60 are often real turning points. In the very early years of Ananda, there was just a whole huge crop of us who all moved there at the age of 24. It was just like it was the moment for us to come. Um, but I recall after 12 years, when I turned 36, it was, this is how it felt to me. It felt like, whereas my subconscious mind had always been a little bit against my aspiration, the 12 years of spiritual effort caused the balance to go like that. Now that doesn't look like much, but it was a revolution. Because from being slightly oriented against what I was trying to do, it became oriented toward what I was trying to do. It was just like putting oil in the wheel. I, I confess it took 12 years before I really saw that shift. 12 years is not very long. By just constantly trying to starve out the wrong attitudes and feed in the right attitudes, gradually I managed to turn it over, enough so that it started working on my side. By no means am I talking about clear sailing. I'm just talking about oiled wheels, that's all at this point. But since, since all of our repeated actions and all of our repeated thoughts and all of our repeated responses to life are what the subconscious hands us. You know, if a hundred times in a row, when that person comes in front of you, you think, oh, I hate that person, it's so terrible, you don't really have to plan it out the next time. The person will come and your subconscious will say, oh, this is the person you hate, right? Or in particularly in my case, the person appeared in a whole new body in a whole new context. And my subconscious said, oh my God, not again and went into a state of panic that took me years to get out of, right? Because that was the last thing that I remembered. I'd never overcome uh, my, my particularizing of that experience. I never made it impersonal. I didn't use enough guiana until this incarnation, right? So, uh, Patanjali also wrote out what he considered to be the basic right attitudes, right behaviors for uh, for right living to, to, to win the battle between the subconscious and the superconscious. And there, they happen to be ten, as, as we write there, the yamas and the niyamas. And they describe, as, as he puts it, it's a peculiar statement, which I've heard many times and I've, it took me years to understand it. Because the first five are, 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 are called the ones that you control. And so we always think that what I have to control is my bad actions, don't we? You know, I have to, I have to but the way they're stated in this, this system is that what you have to control is you have to stop doing the wrong thing and the right thing will automatically happen. That our natural nature is good, we just have a bad habit of doing the wrong thing. So we have to practice non-violence, you know, we have to practice non-lying. If we just don't do it, if we, if we, uh, I, I'm not saying it clearly, I can feel it myself. Let me try it one more time. Well, automatically tell the truth, yeah. I'm not, but I started out differently than I meant to say, so I'm just going to leave that one and just go on because I, can't, I haven't said it the way I want to say it and I don't think I can pull it out. Okay. The, um, what's called the yamas, which are the, the, the yamas, are um, ahimsa, which is nonviolent. Ahimsa is a, a, a word that's well known, nonviolent. We have to practice non-violence. We have to practice non-lying. We have to practice non-avarice. We have to practice non-attachment. And we have to practice brahmacharya, which is self-control. Okay. 
that. Right. But what A natural goodness comes out. Right. It's, it's a whole different way of looking at it. If I could just stop affirming untruth, then I don't have to worry about telling the truth. If I could just stop acting uh, in a way that pushes away kindness and sweetness, kindness and sweetness is my natural nature. Do you see, Do you see what it is? It's not like I have to try to be good. I just have to cease being bad. That's what I was trying to say. Right? I, I got myself all mixed up on the right and the wrong side of it and I just thought if I quit for a while I could come back to it right don't try to be good just cease being bad you see how it sounds negative but it's actually more positive because goodness is in you if you just stop blocking it with your wrong attitude you see so ahimsa nonviolence um, is the uh, and, so, and so again they mentioned that in this particular you know, this kind of a planet, you can't practice perfect nonviolence because it just doesn't work that way. You, as they talk about germs and vegetables, and uh, we were, we, when we were in uh, Bonaire in the Caribbean, uh, there was this very little town and there was a restaurant and it was an Italian restaurant run by a real Italian family and it was by far the best restaurant in town, so we went there quite a lot. But when we first went there, we walked in and we uh, said that we were vegetarians and could she could she serve us? Uh, and she started asking, "What kind of vegetarians are you? Vegans? Are you this? Are you that?" It turned out she'd been, as she said, a waitress in California. <laughs> and because there wasn't weren't a lot of other people in the restaurant, and she was very chatty, she talked with us for a while, and she said, "The hardest person she ever served." is the person who only wanted to eat things that had fallen naturally from the plant. <laughs> because they were trying to practice ahimsa to such an extent that they didn't want to pull the fruit off the tree. Okay. Now, Swami says, you can go so far that you can be so preoccupied with this that you're not. In fact, it was specifically in this context. It was in the context of exaggerated preoccupation with diet that Swami mentioned what Master said, and he actually said it in the context of um, that in this, in, at this time, you cannot attain real spiritual development merely by purifying your physical body. Because matter is so dense that even with a very pure physical body, there's still so much pulling you down. And two, you can't purify it that much in this age because it's, the matter is too dense. And so, if you spend all that time trying to purify your physical body, you really will make very little spiritual progress compared to devotion. And that was in that context that Master said, or that Swami repeated it, I'm not sure if it's where Master said it, but that was when Swami said that devotion is, where, is what's right for this age. And, and that's why Master said, practice proper Eterianism and then forget it. And he didn't make a very good point about it. He just said, eat what the body needs and, and just... He encouraged vegetarianism, but not. he wasn't even strict about that. He said, because in this age, it doesn't help you that much. It, devotion has much more power. Now, in that way, about nonviolence, it's really about your consciousness. It's, it's getting over the desire to injure. And, and that's very different than accidentally, from time to time, because you can't help it. The getting over the desire to injure, which is an affirmation of your separateness. And so if we stop pushing the world away and, and acting as if we can gain by acting as if it was separate, 
the natural goodness and our natural sense of unity will just come to us. Now, they, Swami also pairs these with the niyamas, and this is something he himself created. The niyamas are, the, are those things that you let flow. Niyamas means non-control. These are the qualities in you that you want just to let flow. And the, the one that pairs with himsa is cleanliness, which it sounds really funny, but what it actually means is purity, purity of heart especially. And so once we practice nonviolence perfectly, which is once we stopped seeing the world as separate from ourselves, how can we reach out and injure anything if we think it's ourselves? You know, to pick up a knife and stab yourself in the hand, why would you do that? It's a really dumb thing to do. But we do it all the time to others in one form or another. And when people do it to us, we're terribly hurt. But when we, when we really get over the impulse to think that we can gain by injuring, um, then we become pure of heart. And then the natural purity of the heart just flows out of us, so they work in cooperation with each other. So we watch this impulse to, to squelch people's energy and try to cultivate, you, you work on it both sides, you kind of cultivate also a kind of sweetness. I find with this quality of purity of heart, I don't know if you're, if you're fortunate enough in your lives as I have been, I have known a few people who have been extraordinary in this quality. Um, some of you have heard me talk about my friend Paula, who's now in the afterworld, she died a, number, a few years ago, and a few other people I know who are so naturally good and if you can get any image in your mind of somebody you know, or even an imaginary image, or a picture of Divine Mother, or Christ, or Master, I find that if I meditate on their consciousness, and even try, uh, when I think of Paula, she had characteristic expressions, and characteristic ways of holding her body, and a funny little way of talking that was very childlike. And when I feel myself falling too much into this side, into the, you know, not able to control some impulse to think that I can gain something by going after others, I think I just like step inside of Paula's body and feel that real sweetness of hers and I just try to do it like she would do it, right? So you can, it, it, having these paired together is very helpful because sometimes you can't just restrain yourself but maybe you can let something else flow. I remember one of my favorites with Paula was somebody had, she, for a long time she was the buyer at Mountain Song. Paula was a magnificent shopper. I mean, this woman was a saint, really. Swami actually even said after she died that he actually said he thought she might have been completely freed. But she was also the best shopper in the world. After she died, when her husband started giving away her clothes, I mean, there were satchels and satchels, and she never gained weight in her life, too, so she could always had all the same things. But I mean, all of us, we just got bags of stuff, and she had great stuff. And she just shopped like crazy. She was fantastic at it. She just had a marvelous ability. And at the same time, she was so free in her heart. Didn't have anything to do with what she really did. It was just the way, the way she did it. She was what I called a trance shopper. She would go into a trance, you know. She would just like... Those of you... Just, I'll just tell one more little story about Paul. It's totally irrelevant. Those of you who have ever been to, to Ananda Expanding Light Serenity House, which is uh, this whole dormitory. I don't know if there's eight rooms in it or something like that. Twelve rooms, maybe. It's twelve rooms, a living room, maybe six bathrooms, this whole thing. They built Serenity House. Paula, with a gigantic truck, or maybe two trucks, went down to Sacramento and furnished 
the entire place without a list. She just went through and then had everything she needed and brought it home and it was all perfect. She had everything she needed. That's what I mean. She was super conscious. <laughs> but she's a good example too because, you know, who would have thunk that she was just a saint in her heart? But thinking of it, I love to talk about Paula, forgive me. Um, but if you have anybody in your life that you can think of, or even an imaginary image, when this side of it begins to grab you, then let this one loose. And bear in mind, this is the one that you don't control. Here what you're doing on this side is you're controlling it. You're controlling your goodness by acting badly, you see? Isn't that an interesting way to put it? You're suddenly you're controlling your goodness because you're acting badly. You release your goodness. Stop, stop blocking it. And then you're free. And it, and it keeps you also oriented. You're not a bad person. You've just accidentally blocked your goodness. You remove the block and your goodness is already there. Um, Non-lying is simply to, you know, to stop not telling the truth <laughs> about reality. And Swami makes a good point that truth is always kind and truth and fact are not always the same. And he, he uses little examples. But it, that doesn't mean that you never speak stern words, don't misunderstand me, but truth is always helpful, truth is always beneficial, is the best way to say it. Because sometimes it may feel unkind, but it's kinder on a deeper level. In the same way that the surgeon's knife may hurt you, but uh, it's, not, uh, it's not unkind for the surgeon to cut you open. He's doing what really needs to be done. Um, and the, the parallel to this is, is the one that's called devotion to the Supreme Lord. And the other, the other beauty of non-lying is it's, it's, it's ultimate. The biggest lie of all that we tell is that the material world is real and that we are separate from God. And that's the lie, that's the lie that we have to stop telling. And so that's why when you stop telling the ultimate lie, you're devoted to the Supreme Lord because there is nothing else. You see how beautiful that is? And so whenever we're in a situation where we think God is not with us, we have a right to suffer, God doesn't love us, we're really not worthy, we're telling a lie. And the opposite of that is our devotion to God. And so every time we suffer, that's a lie, and the truth is devotion to God. Isn't that a marvelous way to think about it? And every time we feel like we're suffering, we're controlling our natural devotion to God, and we ought to just let it go. You can free yourself, bhakti yoga, it all begins to weave together in a, in a really beautiful way. Non-avarice is a very interesting one, too. The opposite of that is contentment. Sometimes this is called non-stealing, but as Swami writes, few people who are really interested in this kind of study have a problem with being thieves. Some might. But avarice is really, as he puts it, desiring um, that which is not really yours. And the way you get over non-avarice is with a very simple understanding that which is mine will surely come to me. And whatever comes to me is mine, and what doesn't come, come to me was never meant to be mine. And so that's why contentment is the opposite of it. And contentment is not passivity. Contentment is an appreciation that life happens as it's meant to happen. And avarice sometimes is this grabbing out for things that are not really there for you to have. That's different than hard work and nishkam karma, working hard without attachment to the fruit. Avarice is wanting. And the, the word avarice has that quality to it of greed and moving beyond that which would naturally flow to you. So the practice of contentment to say, well, if this is how God gives it to me, that's fine with me. I don't have to be greedy for more. 
in our in the medical profession these days we have a lot of avarice for prolonging life we have what people call life greed you know life death comes it's a natural thing to come and yet there's this sort of panic avaricious attitude that I have to drive it away I don't mean a natural dynamic desire to stay in the body that you've worked so hard to develop so that you can keep learning your lessons I mean when the when the natural time comes just be content with what comes if God gives you difficult times be content with that don't be greedy that it always has to be the way you want it to be just practice contentment so oh, that restless feeling of needing something the opposite to that is contentment and non-attachment um, is, is Swami describes as um, the the, the non-identification even with that which is yours which is a very subtle way to put it this is that sometimes this is translated as the non-acceptance of gifts which seems a very strange translation so Swami put this around to even the even that which comes to you because it's your own you don't identify with it you don't accept it because the perfection of this one is that you remember your past lives that's the power that comes through when you practice this one of the yamas perfectly so that means you, you haven't accepted even your own body as yourself you've detached yourself so much even from that which is naturally yours that you have complete freedom to remember everything that ever happened why don't we remember our, we remember our past lives to a large extent because we're so strongly identified with this one we just can't put ourselves in another reality why the other reason is because it would drive us crazy <laughs> And the um, the opposite of this is self. The balance of this is self-study, and that means study the true self. It's, they sometimes call it introspection, but introspection can be intellectual. So self-study, non-attachment comes when we ask ourselves over and over, "What is real and who am I?" And when you ask yourself repeatedly the right question, "Who am I?" It makes you very detached. Why should I need this? Why should I need that? Why should I identify with this? And so the point being that we want to take the energy that we have and direct it where, where it really needs to go. And the um, quality on this side is austerity, which Swami does not describe as uh, deprivation, but as the re-channeling of our energy into a higher force. The word in Sanskrit is tapasya, which actually also means devotion. So self-control is an act of devotion in the sense that instead of dissipating our energies in ways that produce nothing we focus that energy toward that which is our goal and so oftentimes when we feel our energy being dissipated the way to balance that is to suddenly direct that energy toward something that's more useful to us if you're dissipating your energy by watching too much television you get up and you do something more productive if you're dissipating your energy by being very angry with someone even in your mind maybe you're dissipating your energy by having this angry conversation then you do something with your physical body or you play music or you you do something that redirects the energy and gives you self-control okay a friend of mine this is the last thing I'll say a friend of mine raised eight children and she said she put the yamas and the niyamas on the refrigerator and she raised eight children with these principles and whenever there was a dispute in the family or there was a discipline that had to be offered she was very clever she got so that the refrigerator was actually the boss in the house got a lot of heat off of her 
she would take the kids over and they'd look at these on the refrigerator and they'd figure out how whatever the issue was that they were trying to solve was up there. She said it, it worked. She said it always worked. It was never not there. Whenever there was, there was dissonance or confusion or wrong energy in the house, they could always find it on the refrigerator and they could always work their way back to what they ought to do. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. That's how fundamental these attitudes are. So learn them and work with them and we'll see you next week.